Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. We're not going to talk much about the border today. Uh, We've talked about it a lot the last two days from the administration saying that it's the Republicans' fault that the border isn't more secure and that the last administration uh, was a disaster on the border. Then we had the whole Martha's Vineyard thing. But uh, let's talk about some good news here. Uh, We have been rather pessimistic, I think, on the uh, prospects of Republicans winning back the Senate. And I still wouldn't put any money on it at this point. But it's worth pointing out that the numbers are getting better here, Jim. And uh, I think the the first one we want to talk about here is uh, Ron Johnson, Ron Johnson was well behind Mandela Barnes, who's the lieutenant governor, uh, seven points, according to the pretty well-respected Marquette poll just a month ago. Now it's Johnson by one, 49 to 48%. I don't know that Ron Johnson's approval numbers are all that great in Wisconsin. They're probably a little bit better based on those numbers. But uh, what the Republicans seem to be doing a good job of is uh, explaining just how far left Mandela Barnes is and they're using cash bail and the Waukesha Christmas parade attack last year uh, to drive that point home in a recent ad. What happens when criminals are released because bail is set dangerously low? Tragedy in Waukesha, an SUV plows through the city's Christmas parade. Six people were killed and dozens more injured. Brooks was freed from jail on $1,000 bail. Mandela Barnes wants to end cash bail completely. He wrote the bill. Barnes still wants to end cash bail today. Mandela Barnes, not just a Democrat, a dangerous Democrat. NRSC is responsible for the content of this advertising. And Jim, it's not just uh, the numbers for Ron Johnson. Uh, Adam Laxalt, uh, the Republican challenger in Nevada, is up by one, according to The Hill in a very recent poll. Trafalgar had him up three uh, middle of last month. Uh, In uh, North Carolina, Ted Budd is up by an average of 1.3, still pretty tight, but the last two polls had him plus three against Sherry Beasley. Uh, And then even in uh, Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz is still behind. Uh, Fetterman on average is up 6.2, but it had been double digits. And a couple of recent polls are around plus five or plus four for Fetterman. And the longer he can't, you know, articulate a sentence, that's only going to work to Dr. Oz's advantage, I would suspect. And in Ohio, uh, with one exception, uh, J.D. Vance still seems to be ahead. So a a lot of very tight races. A lot can still happen here in the last month and a half or more. But uh, the way things are trending in some of these key races uh, should give us some optimism. It should, Greg. And, uh, you know, the the takeaway from this martini is not, ah, don't worry, Republicans have got this. The Senate's locked up. No, no. I think it's still a jump ball, still a lot of road ahead. Um, I do know that in like one or two states, they do start early voting like in the next week or so. Um, but by and large, you know, there are a bunch of races that Republicans are still in. Um, the news on Ron Johnson, one that is a pretty interesting flip in a relatively short period of time for the Marquette poll. Uh, you know, maybe he was never down that much. Maybe he's, you know, maybe this was just kind of a weird outlier. I would also note, once again, in 2016, Ron Johnson was supposed to be toast, and just about every poll had him trailing, usually pretty bad. Some tightening as they got to November, but he was still a heavy uh, uh, you know, underdog, and he ended up winning by three points. So my attitude is, I won't believe Ron Johnson is gone from the Senate until the last vote has been counted. It's not a guarantee that he'll win. It just says, I just don't, I don't know whether Wisconsin is a 
particularly difficult uh, state to poll. It does remind me of Susan Collins winning fairly comfortably up in Maine last cycle after trailing, I believe, every single poll taken in that Senate race. So it just kind of tells you. And but these are generally when, when I say this, a lot of people say, ah, you know, this means, you know, all the polls are nonsense. No, I don't think all the polls are nonsense. I think that there are certain states that are particularly bad. I think there are certain pollsters that are particularly bad. I think if you look at them in aggregate, uh, it gives you a sense. Yes, we remember Maine. Yes, we remember South Carolina from last cycle. But there were also a bunch of polls where, you know, the Democrat was projected to win and the Democrat won, sometimes by a smaller margin than the polling had kind of, you know, indicated. And then there are states that are, you know, relatively not all that competitive where, yes, the candidate who's heavily favored ends up winning but rough, by roughly the margin they expect. We remember the really bad ones because they're outliers, because they stand out. And you're like, oh, my God, how could you possibly think, you know, Lindsey Graham was going to lose in South Carolina and stuff like that. Um, Nevada is one of those Senate races that doesn't get nearly as much attention. And I think it could end up being really important. Uh, Cortez Masto has not been a whirling dervish of raw political charisma, uh, relatively bad to meh approval ratings. Uh, I'm not saying Laxalt is a lock, but, you know, that one's in play. Uh, North Carolina was one I was a little nervous about. So it's nice to see Bud starting to get a lead. These are not big leads, but I think it's also worth remembering North Carolina is not the reliable Republican state that it used to be. And as you mentioned, look, I'm not going to say uh, Oz, who I've been kind of critical of and mocking for much of this. Look, she's not, he's not doing great, but I think the spotlight, people are starting to look more seriously at Fetterman's issues. People were, I think the average Pennsylvanian was willing to cut him a lot of slack. Uh, remember, his, his stroke was back in May, right? So, the, you know, like, okay, he was basically, you know, off the campaign trail for two months, going on to three months. And there was a lot of, you know, mocking of Oz for crudités and stuff like that. Well, it's after, you know, Labor Day. People are looking more seriously. Maybe people don't love Oz. Maybe he's not the ideal candidate, but they may have more agreement with him and frustration with the status quo. And there's an increasing sense that Fetterman is not being honest about how slow his recovery is going. And I think that's going to start eating away. And we've talked about newspaper editorial boards telling them you got to have some, you got to participate in these debates, which might be a good uh, segue to our next martini, Greg. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be because uh, it's, it's, you know, Fetterman's going to agree to a debate on October 25th, long after early voting starts in Pennsylvania. And I think that's what, not what was midday on election day book? <laughs> <laughs> election night 10 minutes before the polls close yeah yeah that's probably his first choice all right on to our second martini now and jim i i'm noticing this curious trend of democrats who love to paint their opponents as rabid extremists yet for some reason they won't debate them you'd think if they were these total crackpots they'd want to get that uh, exposed on stage in real time but apparently they don't. The New York Post uh, today with a picture of Governor Kathy Hochul in a chicken suit, which uh, has a headline saying, Why won't our scaredy cat governor, and cat is K-A-T for, for Kathy, agree to debate opponent Lee Zeldin? So remember Kathy Hochul saying that Lee Zeldin was so extreme he didn't even deserve to live in the state anymore. So you'd think it'd be pretty easy to point out where he's radical in a state that leans hard blue, but she won't do that. Uh, perhaps uh, the track record of her administration and the Cuomo administration, which she was part of, uh, not so easy to defend. But it's not just her. 
Uh, Katie Hobbs is the Democratic governor uh, nominee in Arizona, which is an open seat. Doug Ducey is term limited there. Uh, supposedly, Carrie Lake is a radical, uh, to way too far MAGA Republican uh, Trump fanatic. Uh, it's a deadlock in the polls, and Hobbs refuses to debate. Up in uh, Washington state, Patty Murray, considered a fairly solid favorite to hold on to her Senate seat for another six years, won't debate Republican nominee Tiffany Smiley. So, Jim, once upon a time, that would suggest that, indeed, you are chicken if you're not going to debate. But apparently, uh, the Democratic strategy is, we're not, we're, we're just not going to dignify ourselves by being on the same stage as these people. Yeah, which I don't think is a good look for most of them. I would love to tell you that Lee Zeldin is going to beat Kathy Hochul. I, I don't think that is the case. I'd also like to tell you that Zeldin is nipping at her heels and, you know, running close. For what it's worth, the Trafalgar poll had him within five. Uh, the Emerson poll had him down 15. And mo- like it's New York State. It's, it's really, you gotta need a near perfect set of circumstances to for a Republican to beat a Democrat statewide. Um, but so that one's a little surprising. You, you would think, and particularly that, you know, what a big talker she can be on the campaign trail and how extreme she says Zeldin is. Yeah, I think this is someone who uh, probably deep down worries that she's, you know, uh, would look bad, but that Zeldin has enough issues in terms of the state's response to COVID-19, the state's response to schools, and the state's response to crime, uh, including crime that involved the stabbing of Lee Zeldin, who then, of course, had his attacker released on bail later that day um, <laughs> under a state administrative system run by Huckle. And, and as many people point out, you know, when you're letting out the guy who tried to kill your opponent, that's kind of unfair. That that does seem like an unfair advantage uh, uh, in that because, you know, Zeldin now has to, you know, sleep with one eye open and, you know, watch his back on the campaign trail. In the other example, I think it's even more significant because um, I was thinking about like w- when you're in a campaign, what's the worst spot to be? In? And obviously, you know, no one wants to be trailing. But if you're trailing by a lot, you might as well try everything you got. Right. What's it going to do? You're going to lose by you're going to lose even worse. You're down 20. You're down 30. You might as well throw out the kitchen sink. You might as well try every crazy idea you have. It might just work and you might just, you know, hit on something that could be very successful for you. It also is kind of a similar approach if you're trailing by a little bit that you basically shouldn't keep your powder dry. You shouldn't be, you know, playing a use football metaphor, a ball control offense, three yards in a cloud of dust. You can afford to take some risks if you're trailing because you're trailing and you might as well try it because, you know, there's always a chance it'll work and all that stuff. If you're ahead by 20 points, you don't generally see campaigns doing this. But yes, if you're ahead by a huge amount, you can afford to experiment. You can afford to try new ideas because you're ahead by 20 or 30 points and it's not really a competitive race. And it's a good way to kind of say, hey, let's try this message or let's try this strategy or Let's do this kind of event and just see what happens and just see what kind of reaction it gets. In other words, all of these things allow you a certain amount of freedom of movement and strategy and the sorts of things you can do, except when you're either tied or when you're ahead by a little bit. And maybe that's those are the most nerve wracking positions to be in, that maybe those are the situations where you really kind of turn into a turtle uh, hiding in your shell or you, you become an ostrich with your head in the sand. You just kind of, uh, you know, we don't want to make any mistakes. Uh, you know, if we, if we try that, it might backfire. It might blow up in our faces and we lose, you know, being ahead by a little bit can be a really stressful position to be in because you don't really know 100% why you're ahead by a little bit and you don't really know what message or aspect of the candidate is what's keeping them ahead. And if you try anything new and different, it might, it might go wrong. So you have to stay that way. I suspect that Hobbs in Arizona and Patty Murray in Washington 
see a debate as risky because they're ahead. They're not ahead by a lot. I mean, like Pat, Patty Murray's ahead by a decent amount, but this is a state that Republicans have kind of seen as a, uh, you may say the Democrats, Senate Democrats soft underbelly for a while, but this is actually, she's weaker than she looks. There's more frustration with the status quo than their peers. And now you might argue this is a way Republicans have looked at Washington state for a really long time, but we'll see. Hobbs in Arizona really jumps out because you figure if Lake is such a maniac, she should be, you know, well ahead and she isn't. And so I think she kind of looks at it and says, if she gets out on that stage and she doesn't blow the doors off the place and she doesn't, you know, mop the floor uh, with Lake, then all of a sudden this doesn't look, you know, well, people might, you know, one, Lake, there's always a chance Lake will have a good performance. And I think she's a former television anchor, right? Right, yep. So she's used to being on camera. She's used to being... Uh, doing things live and, and thinking on her feet and things like that. And, you know, also maybe part of the problem is, and we, we've seen this dynamic in debates over the years, the more you argue, uh, my opponent is a raving lunatic, uh, a drooling imbecile who, who can't, you know, get two syllables out and just the worst person in the world. And then they go out on the stage and they seem normal. A whole bunch of voters are like, oh, oh, maybe, maybe this person isn't quite so bad. Wait a second. You told me this person was going to, you know, uh, have a burning cross on stage. And then they talked about how much they love the Pledge of the Allegiance. You told me this person was a drooling imbecile and they sounded fine. And you said that they were uh, a dangerous maniac and they gave the, uh, the Whitney Houston speech that they believe the children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. So it, it's very easy once you've lowered the expectations for your opposition to actually have that backfire on you. And I think that's what you're seeing in Hobbes and Patty Murray, who maybe in, in Hochul too. This sense of we're ahead, but we don't want to screw it up. Ah, this could go wrong. Just just don't do anything. Just just stay there. Just you know hide. <laughs> don't do anything controversial, and just hope things you know freeze things in amber between now and election day. And that generally is a, a tough strategy to keep all the way to the end. Yeah, I'm just thinking of these specific races and some of the issues that they would not want to talk about. You know, nursing homes for Kathy Hochul. She wasn't governor then, but she was still part of the administration. Uh, crime, like you mentioned. The border, if you're Hobbs in Arizona. Plus, she was, uh, you know, she's uh, overseeing elections right now. And the primary was kind of a mess. Uh, so there's reasons for people don't like her. And don't forget Patty Murray, uh, within the last six years, uh, basically kept her mouth shut when insane people created their... Uh, uh, autonomous zone in Seattle, <laughs> and and it just turned into a total nightmare over there to the point where the police chief uh, basically gave up and and left. So there's a lot of baggage in a lot of these places for these people that they probably don't want to talk about very much. Yeah, I just kind of also note that like there's a actually I'd say all of the West Coast states uh, Republicans have a better shot than usual in the governor's race in Oregon. I don't think it's likely you're going to see, you know, sweeping Republican wins in California, but there's one or two statewide races that are looking okay. Uh, state auditor, I think it is. And, uh, uh, you know, the state legislative seats might do a little bit better. I think there are a lot of people who think of themselves as good Democrats who are looking at the consequences of, of policies that have been in place in states like Washington State and Oregon and California, and they don't like the results. And they, they wasn't supposed to be this way. And there wasn't supposed to be this giant uh, wealth gap and real difficulty in, you know, cost of living and homelessness problems and crime problems. And, uh, you know, people can't afford to live here. So they're moving further out. So sprawl gets worse. All kinds of facts. Like, this wasn't what the progressive dream was supposed to be. And I think there's that clash there. Now, is this enough to get people to vote Republicans? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But I do think uh, it is not smooth sailing for the West Coast Democrats. You also... Uh 
mentioned Rich Libs getting uh, self-conscious about stuff. You are teeing up every future topic perfectly today, and that's what we're going to discuss here in just a second. All right, let's talk about our crazy martini now, Jim. This is also the subject of your uh, morning jolt today. Uh, there are a few things that seem to frustrate you as much as libs who pretend that uh, even though they're filthy rich, uh, getting filthy rich was never their goal, which is stupid. Of course it was. It was at least part of their goal. And now we've got this guy, Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard, a self-described socialist who contends that every billionaire represents a policy failure, announcing, quote, Earth is now our only shareholder. Uh, you go on to say in the jolt that he was very, very upset the day he found out that Patagonia became a billion-dollar company. I think it's worth $3 billion now. And as you point out, uh, he was selling $300 backpacks, $500 sleeping bags, $700 parkas. What did he think was going to happen when he charged that much? Uh, but now he's upset. Uh, he, you know, he thinks he's uh, let everybody down. So he's, uh, any profits that uh, don't go back into the business are going to be handed over to these uh, far-left green uh, nonprofit groups to do something about the planet. So... I guess he's trying to ease his conscience here, Jim, in some way, but uh, he's not the only one who does this, as you point out in the piece, too. So what do you make uh, of the left constantly decrying capitalism, making a mint off of it, and then pretending it was never their plan? I was going to say, Greg, I've never seen a man who complains more about being a billionaire. <laughs> this kind of all started, you know, late 2019. I'm walking through bookstores and the cover of Fast Company which I later realized is basically the uh, perfect publication, almost the Bible for extremely wealthy progressives who have no self-awareness. Um, <laughs> basically has this, you know, this capitalism is dead, long live capitalism. And it was a whole cover story, it was a whole interview with him, this idea. And in this interview, he says he's an avowed socialist. I'm proud of it. That was a dirty word just a few years ago until Bernie Sanders brought it up. It was equated with communism and that whole thing. I'm not talking about Venezuela, which is a disaster. That's not a socialistic country. That's a, I don't know what. Well, I mean, the Venezuelans call their system socialism. <laughs> Most economists call their system socialism. It's also a bit of a kleptocracy. You can say it's very corrupt and it's very, uh, it did tout itself as a socialist you know, republic. You could be left, right, and center. And I think all kinds of people would say, can you be a socialist billionaire? No. <laughs> you can find people on the left who'd say, nah, I don't think you're really, you're not in the club anymore. Uh, and then, of course, you can find all kinds of people like, well, if, you, if you're a socialist billionaire, you are raging against the economic system that gave you the freedom and the, the access to markets and capital that gave you the ability to become a billionaire. So, you know, and quite literally, he said, you know, every billionaire is a policy failure. This is effectively walking around wearing a sign saying, I am a policy failure. <laughs> and I don't know about you, Greg, I understand the desire to, you know, walk up and just cross out the policy word. Uh, but look, <laughs> he's an extremely successful businessman and he makes uh, all kinds of outdoorsy stuff that people love. And if you like Patagonia, great. God bless you. Go enjoy it. All that stuff. I'm glad you could afford it because, uh, as I mentioned, the stuff is not cheap. And oh, by the way, you know, one of the little wrinkle to this is that <clears throat> they're a defense contractor, uh, not on the level of, you know, McDonnell Douglas or Boeing or one of those big ones, but, you know, uh, they sell winter gear to the Pentagon. Um, and so I think, I don't know if that quite fits with their green crunchy image, but fine. What Chunar did this week is, you know, he, oh, you know, now Earth is our only shareholder. What do you mean? This is a privately held company. It's not, you know, it's not publicly shared trades of shares of stock or anything like that. 
he's transferring ownership of the country of the company to two institutions, right? So the voting stock goes to the Patagonia Purpose Trust, which is basically designed to keep the company operating and protect their values. And the non-voting stock, meaning this, you know, all of the profits once they've you know paid all their salaries. Oh, by the way, the you know CEO of Patagonia, who's not this guy, uh, but who we um, makes you know eh, seven million a year uh, as of 2013. I assume it's gone up since then. But you know, and then all the profits would go to this something he's called the Holdfast Collective, which is a 501c4 nonprofit, but it can advocate for causes and political candidates. If it was a 501c3, it would not be able to endorse political candidates. So he's basically creating this like giant environmental organization. Uh, that all of the Patagonia profits, once everyone's been paid and all the expenses have been covered, will go to. Now, this is all perfectly legal. This is all perfectly fine. You know, that in fact, a, a conserv wealthy conservative did something uh, similar a little while back to help the Marble Freedom Trust, which you've not heard of. It's Leonard Leo's organization. It's the organization that's um, basically, uh, you know, where conservative judicial nominees come from. Leonard Leo is basically the architect of the mastermind of the uh, current conservative Supreme Court majority. So uh, he's, his organization will be exceptionally well-funded for a really long time to come. But anyway, it's a free country. Chuanard can do this, but Bloomberg noted that if you look closely at this, uh, how the work, deal works, he doesn't have to pay federal capital gains taxes he would have owed if he'd sold the company. And you know, it's a $3 billion company, so he probably would be paying something in the neighborhood of $700 million. Um, and of course, because he's not giving it to his kids, they don't have to pay the U.S. estate or gift taxes, which would be a 40% levy on large fortunes and such. So, you know, by putting this all through a trust, he and his family effectively still run the company. Um, there are other folks who are on that board, but by and large, it still operates the way he does. And he doesn't have to pay all these taxes. Some of us would say, hmm, this is kind of having your cake and eating it too. The second great irony of all this is it wasn't that long ago that uh, Patagonia as a company and their CEO were complaining that other companies say they support climate change, but they're opposing the Inflation Reduction Act. Hey, remember when the Inflation Reduction Act was supposed to reduce inflation? Okay. <laughs> yeah, one of the things in it was a domestic corporate minimum tax of 15% applied to companies with a revenue of more than 1 billion. By the way, when my after I wrote today's jolt, one of my readers reminded me, Patagonia doesn't have revenue of more than 1 billion. So Patagonia was basically saying, hey, all of these companies that make more money than us should be paying higher taxes, but not us, we're good. Um, but he writes this, and then of course they do this arrangement to help him avoid 700 billion in capital gains, or 700 million, pardon me, with an M, not a B, in capital gains taxes, and to protect the family from estate taxes and gift taxes. The lesson, even socialist billionaires hate paying more in taxes than they have to, which is fine. That's our position on the right. The problem is you can't run around telling people, oh, you gotta pay more taxes. And then you yourself say, oh, I'm going to use these perfectly legal maneuvers because I want to minimize my tax bill because I think I can do more good with this money than the government can. Wow. What an original concept mm. that we could do more with our money than the government can. And uh, Jim, I don't know what it is about some of these billionaires. The other one, of course, that immediately comes to mind is Bill Gates. You know, uh, for a while there, he was mainly focused on helping people uh, survive malaria, which was great. And then all of a sudden, he is working uh, big time behind the scenes on COVID vaccines. And I think it was you who put out the joke. I'm not sure I want uh, the former head of Microsoft when it comes to viruses being the one <laughs> to, try and, to try and solve that. Uh, and now he's trying to make sure that nobody ever eats meat again. I mean, 
he's just getting weirder and weirder. So some of these guys, I don't know if they're just bored or they've uh, drunk so much Kool-Aid they uh, just are going public with the stupidest ideas possible. But uh, whatever it is, these guys are gone nuts. I, I suspect part of this is that when you become a billionaire, the people who will tell you, mm, that's not a good idea, or you haven't thought this through, or there's a uh, complication, unforeseen consequences of what you're proposing here, those voices get rarer and rarer because you have a billion dollars and everyone wants to, you know, get some help from you in that sense. They want to, it's always nice to have a friend who's a billionaire. The one that jumped out at me fairly early on in the pandemic, and he's been thinking about malaria and communicable diseases and uh, epidemic and pandemic, you know, alert systems. And he basically wanted to create a global alert system for pandemics. And I, I laid this out and I've never seen any type of counter argument from Gates or the Gates people. We have systems that are designed to detect new communicable diseases. And had COVID-19 emerged in, say, France, we would have known a lot more about it in like a day or two than we learned in weeks and weeks from the Chinese government. Almost any other country with an open society has great incentives to communicate, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we're seeing in the medical tests. This is why we think it's communicable. You know, hit the panic button, time to alarm, you know, red alert, put in quarantines, all that kind of stuff. China did not. China spent, as you'll recall, all the way up to like the third week of January saying, oh, we have no evidence of human to human transmission, even though doctors were catching it from their patients. Like a good portion of why COVID-19 turned into COVID-19 is because it started in China and the Chinese government could not be honest with anyone, whether it's their own people or the rest of the world or the World Health Organization, about what the disease actually was. And that's why we ended up in the mess that we're in. So what Bill Gates wants people to do is basically what we already have. And it won't work unless you get full buy-in from the Chinese government, which would really require a full change of character in the Chinese government. I don't just mean like get rid of uh, Xi Jinping. I mean, you'd need a, a just, you know, either a democratic revolution or just this utter completely change in philosophy because the attitude in China, and oh, by the way, we in the West are not completely immune to this, is that there is nothing worse than shame. And thus, if you make a mistake, you must cover it up and hope nobody notices. Well, guess what? You can't cover up a communicable disease. So anyway, that's my soapbox for this, uh, this Friday. <laughs> Time for a break. Time for a uh, weekend away and uh, Jets and Bears games uh, this weekend as well. So if the Bears uh, actually beat the Packers this weekend, Jim, I might start to believe a little bit. I'm happy they won last week, but uh, this would be, be actual proof. So this I'm is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Who do you have this week? Uh, the Cleveland Browns, which you know, of the entire AFC North being our schedule is probably the easiest game. They don't have Deshaun Watson yet. But the Jets will be starting Joe Flacco, and um, I, I'm almost ready to concede. Um, <laughs> although Robert Sala said this week he's keeping receipts on everybody who's making fun of the Jets, and you know he'll we, he's gonna wait, he's gonna remember when they're good. I'll just just shut up and win a game. <laughs> Stop telling yeah. me how great you're gonna be, and just get better. You know, show me. Stop telling me how great it's gonna be. You know. Yeah, until you win, you're gonna need a big box for those receipts. I'm so uh... I'm starting to feel like the. Uh, uh, the Sala regime is the the fire festival. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. After Adam Gase, uh, you know, there was so much more hope. But it's gonna um, be so awesome. It's gonna be so good. Just you wait. Just we, you know, we did. We're, we're in year three. I was actually year two of a 24 year rebuilding program. <laughs> Just be patient, everybody. 
Jim, enjoy, I think, this weekend, and I'll see you again on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already, and tell your friends about us as well. Thanks so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Go out and buy Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms. Also, uh, the short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and please join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey guys, we know it's hard to keep up with all the news these days, but don't worry because we're here to talk and laugh about it all. The Biden administration still isn't handling the border crisis, even with millions of illegals flooding the border and woke culture is infecting our schools. So it's more important than ever to get involved in your community. Hey, it's the Chicks here from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.